Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to IceQ Square. My name is Douglas Young. Some of you may know me as the retailer, founder of local Hong Kong brand, G-O-D. And as any retailer will tell you, money, of course, buys you happiness. Just come to G-O-D, you know? <laughs> so don't take my word for it. Check it out yourself, okay, after this. We're still open after the debate. Um, but um, fortunately, we don't have me speaking. We have a panel of distinguished speakers. Uh, most of them are veterans to the debate scene. And the motion, as you know, is money can't buy happiness. Uh, we've just taken your uh, votes as you came in, and we already already have the results, thanks to a very efficient group of young students. Um, there are around 500 of you, and those that are for, 45%. Against, 37%. Undecided, 18%. So see if we can, the speakers here could sway that uh, to the other side. Uh, money can't buy happiness. The debate will raise questions about the link between being rich and being happy, what constitutes happiness, very appropriate for this very materialistic city of Hong Kong. Is economic prosperity the key to personal satisfaction or indeed political stability? um, Before I introduce the speakers, just some notes on housekeeping. There will be questions and answer after everybody's presented and uh, there will be a second round of vote, voting during this uh, question-answer session. So just to remind you how to vote, basically you, you, you still have a piece of paper. There's for and against. So you just tear the slip and deposit the appropriate end onto the ballot bag. If you still remain undecided, please deposit the entire card into the ballot bag. Um, I don't see why people have to be undecided. Um, but <laughs> if you can't decide, at least decide to deposit the whole thing into the bag. Um, so, speakers, f- we have for the motion Professor A.C. Grayling. Professor A.C. Grayling is Master of the New College of the Humanities, an independent undergraduate college in London. He's also supernumerary fellow of St. Anne's College, Oxford. Professor Grayling has written and edited over 20 books on philosophy and other subjects. He has columns at The Guardian, The Times, and have contributed to The Literary Review, Observer, Independent on Sunday, Times Literary Supplement, and New Statesman. 
Professor Grayling frequently broadcasts on the BBC radios 3 and 4 and also on the World Service. In addition, Professor Grayling was fellow of the World Economic Forum for several years and had been a judge for the Booker Prize, the Art Fund Prize and Welcome Book Prize. For nearly 10 years, he was the honorary secretary of the British of the principal British philosophical association, the Aristotelian Society. Um, his partner, also for the motion, is Dr. Stefan Klein. Dr. Klein is a German author based in Berlin and is considered one of the most influential science writers in Europe. He studied physics and analytical philosophy in Munich, Grenoble, and Freiburg, and graduated in biophysics. From 96 to 99, he was editor at Der Spiegel, during which time he was awarded the prestigious Georg von Holtzbrink Prize for Science Journalism. His book, The Science of Happiness, very pertinent to this debate motion, um, of, of 2002, was a national bestseller for over a year and brought him worldwide recognition. Stefan told me that it's even available in Chinese. Um, in 2006, he published The Secret Pulse of Time to international acclaim, and this was an exploration into the human capacity, capacity to perceive time. His latest work, Leonardo's Legacy, came out in 2008. Dr. Klein's work to date has been translated into 27 languages worldwide. And to, do, and, and to quote Stephen, he once said, he wanted to inspire people with a reality that is more exciting than any thriller. For speakers against the motion, we have Ms. Luping. Um, Ms. Luping's first story was Death in a Cornfield, and that was awarded the first prize, first prize in the United Daily News Fiction Competition of 1983. Ever since then, Ms. Lu has been crafting novels, essays, poems, political and social commentary, and stage plays that questions traditional institutions. I think much like what I do from a designer's point of view. Her novels have been categorized as postmodern, historical, science fiction, detective, feminist, and all the above. <laughs> Some of her notable works include The Story of Teresa, a novel about Taiwan's most famous pop diva, Teresa Dang, Dang Lai Guan, and Love and Revolution, Hang Dou Tin Gai, an unconventional historical novel about Song Qi Ling, a member of one of China's most powerful families, and her husband, uh, Dr. Xin Yat-sen, who is the founder of the modern Republic of China. In 2001, Ms. Lu was ambassador at large of Taiwan, and in 2003, as director of the Kwanhua Information and Cultural Center, she was one of Taiwan's top representatives in Hong Kong. And the organization facilitated the exchange of cultural and art between Taiwan, Hong Kong, and the mainland. Ms. Lu's latest novel, published in March this year, is entitled East and Beyond. Finally, we have Louis Iwu. Lewis read politics, philosophy, and economics at Oxford, where he was president of the Oxford Student Union from 2008 to 2009. In 2004 and 2005, Mr. Iwu was elected as a member of the UK Youth Parliament by the young people of his constituency, Newnham. In 2007-08, to 8, representing Oxford, Mr. Iwu won the World Universities Debating Championships. 
Mr. Iwo has been a mentor and program advisor to Debate Mate, a charitable social venture that uses top university students to teach debate. This has helped many children from disadvantaged backgrounds develop communication, higher order thinking, and interpersonal skills, whilst building confidence and self-esteem. Mr. Iwu has often been commended for his charismatic public speaking. The national media has even referred to him as Britain's answer to Barack Obama. <laughs> okay, so ladies and gentlemen, you may be looking at, this is the face of the British future prime minister here. So. <laughs> Thank you. So that concludes my uh, introduction. Um, there will be uh, the presentation starting with um, Dr. Klein, who is going for the motion. Um, so, Dr. Klein, you have 10 minutes. Uh, the speakers will alternate. So there will be one speaker for, followed by uh, Ms. Liu, who is against, and then followed by Professor Grayling, for, and finally, uh, Lewis, who is against. And then after the, uh, the presentations, there will be question and answer. But during questions and answer, have your votes ready so that the ballot uh, bags can be passed around you guys. Thank you very much. Dr. Stefan Kine. So, can money buy happiness? I thought let's hear it from those who really have it. High net worth individuals as the adorable sponsor bank of this event would call them. Here's what one of them says. I have now reigned above 50 years. Riches and honors, power and pleasure have waited on my call, nor does any earthly blessing appear to have been wanting to my felicity. In this situation, I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness, which have fallen into my lot. They amount to 14. Now, it would be an understatement to call Abd Araman, who wrote this mega rich. He, had he lived in a city of palaces he had built because um, he could get any woman and every man he wanted, and his harem needed space. Nor did Abd Araman keep all riches for himself. He had a strong sense of giving long before. Bill Gates found out how hard it is uh, to be happy as a robber baron. So he was a patron of the sciences, of poetry, and of the arts, and he made his country blossom. But happiness? Barely two weeks. So you see, the problem is all but new. Abd al-Rahman, the Caliph of Cordoba, died in 961 when Spain still was a Muslim country. What is new is that the issue affects so many people. We've seen tremendous economic growth in the last decades, and particularly in East Asia. Affluence has become widespread. Income disparities um, have widened. And money is more than ever on people's mind. But so are depressions. Depressive disorders, according uh, to the World Health Organizations, 
are now the number two in the hit list of um, the world of the most socially most devastating diseases. If you wonder what's number one, um, uh, that's still cardiovascular diseases, but they're soon, soon to be overtaken. Depressions are the pest, really, of the beginning 20th century. And what's also new is that science has some answers to that puzzle. Since the 1950s, real incomes have risen by a factor of more than four in most European countries and in America. Has content with life risen as well? Not at all. Everywhere where it's been measured, the curve looks exactly like this. Like this. So, for example, the number of people satisfied with their lives remains stubbornly around 30% in Germany and the numbers elsewhere are similar. Why is that so? Because human nature is such. You see, happiness is an emotion and emotions are signals. Happiness is a signal nature device to let us know of some potential benefit for us. It seduces us into behavior nature wants from us. We have to eat, we enjoy a meal, uh, nature wants us uh, to reproduce, sex is fun, etc., etc. Oh, and we also enjoy pay rises and fashion and gimmicks uh, money can buy. For if you look beyond basic needs, happiness is there also to signal us whatever promises to improve our situation. It's an early warning system for nice surprises. But precisely, that is a glitch. Because once the promise has become reality, the nice surprise is gone. And so are the good feelings. Humans are terribly quick to adapt. In a classic study, people were asked before and after they learned that they had learned a million dollars in a lottery about their satisfaction with life. So right after the fact, of course, the winners were walking on air. Okay. Now, how long did the joy last? Not even six months. When the lucky winners were interviewed again then, they were precisely as happy or not as they were before. With today's brain science, we can even measure the, uh, the evasiveness of happiness due to adaptation in neural processes. And there's only one need to get back what was lost, namely more money, higher doses of fashion, of gimmicks. Does that remind you of an addiction? It should, because the neural mechanisms behind it are exactly the same. Sad circuits that signal pleasant surprises. Drugs sneak into that system chemically, but rolls of cash trigger them as well. So we are hooked on money the very same way any cocaine user is hooked on his or her stuff. And ultimately, that's the reason why we ever want more. And that's why the illusion 
that money can buy happiness is so persistent. Ask any junkie. He will tell you that A, the stuff is good for him, and B, that he or she can control it, whereas in reality, controls him. Now, is a dream to become happier through money always a mirage? Not quite. If, you are, if your basic needs are not met, then money buys really value in terms of a proper roof for your hut, sending your kids to proper schools, um, paying a medical bill. And that, by the way, would be reason enough why we should give much more than we are used to. Our money is worthless for us, but it has real value for people who are beyond the poverty line. But there is another more subtle effect of money. Even if it can't buy happiness, not for us, it can make us, under some circumstances, marginally more satisfied with our lives. Now, how that? You'll ask, now, isn't happiness and satisfaction the same thing? No, they are not, even though they get frequently mixed up. You see, happiness is an emotion. gets triggered without much thinking instantaneously. Satisfaction is a much more cognitive kind of thing. You review your emotions past, you think um, what your life is like, how it should be, etc., and so forth, and then you judge your life is okay or not. Happiness is a warm feeling. Satisfaction is cold reasoning. So you can be happy but not very satisfied with your life, and that's a fact for most of us. Things are not bad when we experience them, but they could be better, of course. In retrospect, we argue away the good moments we had. It's because our brains are programmed, are biased towards negative emotions. And money, indeed, can help us to be a bit less biased, so but only if you are well off, for satisfaction is about comparing. And that's what social psychology shows. People are marginally more satisfied the richer they get as compared to their peers, but they don't feel better. They are not happier. And alas, there's more to it. First, any gains, in, even in satisfaction, become ridiculously small the more money you have. There's a law of diminishing returns. Second, at the moment where everybody gets more, the effect completely evaporates because it's about comparing. And third, is it worth it? To spend the money, to spend a life running after money, just to make your brain delude you a little less on how happy you really are, is a bit disproportionate, isn't it? reminds me of a people who builds a rocket and flies to the moon only to see that it's really there. You have one minute. Your quest for money comes at a price, a huge price, and it's you who pay it. It makes you spend endless hours in office, makes you do plenty of things you really don't want to do were it not for the money. And worst of all, it corrodes all too often what you really draw our happiness from, namely human relationships. And recent empirical findings show very impressively not having money but wanting money severely abates both happiness and satisfaction. On the other hand, the most content people are the ones who put a healthy lifestyle, a good work-life balance, and most of all, their fellow man before their ambition. And the last study to show this 
tracked 10,000 people for over 15 years. So, not money in itself, but the chase after money is toxic. For you, for your fellow man, and for the planet. It makes you forget what life is really about. To think that money will make you happy is a delusion. Get over it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Stefan. So, thank you, Stefan. So, for, against the motion, we have um, Miss Lu. Miss Lu Ping. Thank you. When I was in my late 20s, I was beginning a career as a statistician in the United States. It was a promising job. But during that time, I wrote my first novel, Death in a Cornfield. Another several years, I end up quitting my job and become a writer. I haven't really looked back since. Of course, I didn't become a writer because of money. No one does. I did it because it made me happy. So it seems I should join the other team. <laughs> I like to pursue goals other than making money. Maybe that's why many of you young people in the audience, because you aren't satisfied with a life dedicated to wealth accumul accumulation, just like me in my 20s. You want to be told that you don't need money. You don't need money if you can find happiness in pursuing your dreams. So, should I join the other team? Should I say money cannot buy happiness? After many years of writing and traveling all over the world and doing all kinds of jobs to support my writing, the core I found being a writer, being a good writer, is to have empathy, to have imagination. You, you must have empathy and imagination to understand and appreciate other people's situation. Put yourself in someone else's shoes, especially if their shoes are less comfortable than yours. Right now, I'm standing and you're sitting in this comfortable room. But what if here was the unemployment office? And here, full of people who just lost their jobs. How could I say money cannot buy happiness to those people? Or what if I were somewhere near a subway station and there is a little girl asking her daddy, can I have ice cream? The little girl keeps asking and the, the father knows that uh, he cannot afford to buy one when other fathers buy their daughter ice cream all the time. The only thing the father can do is walk faster and not look at his, his, his daughter. Well, would I say money cannot buy happiness to this father? So no, 
There's no way I could be on the other team. There's no way I could be convinced by their elegant argument. In Chinese, we have many idioms. Describing without money could be embarrassing and sad. We say, 贫贱夫妻百事哀 A couple with no money is guaranteed one hundred sorrows. And we say, 牛一对妻 A poor couple will spend day and night crying. These sayings represent a collective wisdom. It says, "Life is not always easy in the real world. You at least need some money if you don't want to be that sad." I wish we all lived in an ideal and equal world, a world where basic needs are provided for all. An ideal world that no human being has to worry about food, shelter, and illness. Then we can say, "Forget about money and concentrate on something sublime." Then we will not shrink from the statement, "Money cannot buy happiness." But the real world is far from equal. Problem of wealth distribution is becoming more serious. Instead, instead of an M-shaped society, now we have an L one. Hong Kong and mainland China have the widest widest income gap in this world. So, don't let the Hong Kong government start saying money cannot buy happiness. Then the workers would never have a chance to ask for a raise of minimum wage. Also, don't let the Chinese government say money cannot buy happiness. Then they would have a way out. They would have an escape from solving their inequality problems. Remember, the Chinese government loved to use the slogan Har- "harmonious society." What they are really trying is to cover up lots of unharmonious situations in China. The world is full of extremely poor places. Would you tell the starving people that money cannot buy happiness? Would you tell a bunch of low-paid factory worker that you don't need money? It will be too hypocrite to tell them just go to their shabby place and sing a song. In fact, white landlord, white landowners used to. Utilize the same kind of、uh, justification in America. They said their slaves don't need money; they don't need freedom. They said they were quite happy. Otherwise, why would they still sing? I'm not saying money should be the end goal. I'm not saying that we should all try to make lots of money as much as possible. What I'm saying is. In the real world, we should not say money cannot buy happiness. It's irresponsible, it's arrogant, and it's absolutely wrong. Even beyond basic needs, money brings happiness. Most psychologists agree that human connections is a key to happiness. Money can buy plane tickets to visit your siblings. 
gives to show your love. As Asians, we especially recognize the happiness being a provider. For example, if with our help the burden being lessened from our elderly parents, that makes us happy. Psychologists also list having new experiences as is a key to happiness. Novelty and challenge keep us fresh and alive. Pay a wine tasting trip in France, or pick a di- diving lesson in Hawaii, or not even that far. You can go to the cultural center, buy tickets, and go to a jazz concert, or go to Stanley Beach, rent a nice boat. Or just buy a scoop of ice cream to satisfy your sweet tooth. The sugar and the gland inside give you an instant high. Chocolate topping, <laughs> the chocolate topping on the top of the ice cream, will make you feel kind of like euphoria. And I think that's genuine happiness and that's genuine satisfaction. In fact, the most important commodity money can buy is choice. You know this from your daily life. If you have forty Hong Kong dollars in your pocket, you can decide between McDonald's or Starbucks for lunch. But you have only one dollar. You better hope you have a bowl of rice at home. I have one minute. Okay, additional wealth will. Expand your range of choice. For example, if you have a little extra money, you can even buy time. You can pay a babysitter at home, and you earn some quality time to yourself. And if you have some money saved, you can thinking leaving your boring job for something new. You get all the freedom to choose, and you cannot. Escape it. You know it, and I know it. Look into your daily life, and you'll see. We're all sensitive to relative changes in money situation. For example, we hate the feeling that we are worse off than the previous year, and we thought we're losing the game, and we hate it. And in most cases, we live in a close-knit society when other parents can buy their daughter ice cream, and we cannot. We hate it. It's, Sorry. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> Conclusion. Oscar Wilde wrote *The Happy Prince*, a story about a statue sitting high above the city. The statue sees the condition of the poor people, and he asks a little swallow to pluck out all his rubies and gold leaves to give to the poor. Wilde himself comes from a well-off background. But he understood the real world. He gave he gave the world a gift of the happy prince.、Um, the motto from the happy prince is: If you have excess money and you don't know how to do with it, give to those people in need. With your money, they can buy happiness. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Ms. Lupin. So once again, we have somebody for the motion, Professor A.C. Grayling. Thank you.
And whenever one comes a bit later on in a debate, speaks later on, one feels a bit like the MP who got up during the course of an enormously long debate and said, everything has been said already, but not everybody has said it yet, and then gave you a speech. And I I feel that uh, both my uh, predecessors have really made the case um, that we want to make for the motion very eloquently. Stefan has uh, has done the job. I could just read his speech again faster, and then then that that, that would be enough. Um, But I, I also agree with Miss Liu. I mean, Miss Liu was the motion that Miss Liu was speaking to was that it's false that no one needs money, and I agree with her about that. I also agree with her about chocolate. But uh, <laughs> to understand why money can't buy happiness in the true sense of happiness, you first need to know what happiness is, because the way we use the word nowadays, it's a bit like a, a fat man's underpants. You know, it's far too baggy, really. It's got too many other concepts in it, and you need to focus down a little bit on it to understand it more clearly. And to do this, we have to go back into the rich resources of uh, philosophy. So, a typical image, even perhaps a cliched one, really, of a happy person is someone smiling, sorry, having a happy, uh, good time, doing pleasant things, enjoying tranquility and freedom from cares. And we typically think of such a person in a certain kind of setting which conduces to that state of mind. For example, in sunshine, among friends, relaxing, being entertained or absorbingly occupied. But we also think of a happy person as someone who is, on the whole, much more often than not, untroubled and positive in outlook, cheerful, friendly, satisfied with life, generally content with the way things are going in most of the respects that matter to her. And a big part of having an overall positive state of mind like that is that the relationships in her life are good. She has family and friends, affection, support. There are people she cares about and takes an interest in. She isn't lonely or insecure. Of course, there are people, pretty unusual people, who like solitude and don't want contact with others. But such people are pretty rare because human beings are social animals, essentially social animals, and their relationships are fundamental to their psychological health and their well-being. Okay, so that's a, a sort of conventional, rather cliched picture of a typically happy person. But it has some rather interesting features that are worth noting. The first is that it suggests to us that happiness is about a state of being that turns on a particular kind of attitude. A happy person is a person with a characteristic stance towards life, obviously enough, a positive stance. In his book, The Conquest of Happiness, Bertrand Russell observed that people who have outwardly directed interests, who are busy and engaged, connected to others in the world, are far more likely to be happy than those who are wrapped up in themselves, self-absorbed and brooding and disconnected from what's going on around them. And it was another sage, John Ruskin, who said, a man wrapped up in himself makes a very small parcel. And he might equally have said, makes a very unhappy parcel. A second thing to note is the emphasis placed on personal relationships as central to that positive attitude. Solitude is the welcome physical absence of others. You know, when the children are at school, for example, and husbands out of work and so on. Solitude, the welcome physical absence of others. But loneliness is the unwelcome psychological absence of others. Loneliness, isolation, is a painful state. And its opposite is an affirming and supportive state. And this is caused with Russell's theory in the sense that not only does a person get a lot of affirmation and support 
from good relationships, but gives those same things to others in return. And giving affection and help is one of the best-known ways of being happy. The third thing to note, and it arises from both of these other two, is that happiness isn't merely a subjective state of feeling, but rather it's a connection between a subjective state and how that state interprets the surrounding circumstances, the world outside the person. When we imagine happy people, we don't generally think of them in war zones or attending funerals. We think of them instead in advantageous circumstances, with friends, for example, or in a setting they're comfortable in, as we say, when they feel at home. But this is the clincher. That attitude to circumstances is quite independent of how much money was spent on getting those circumstances. Some very happy people are poor or only moderately well-off, and some very rich people are miserable. Those are obvious and well-known facts. And by themselves, they show that there is nothing necessary or inevitable about a connection between money and happiness. Money and happiness are, as the phrase has it, two-way independent. But of course, that isn't the question we're debating. Our debate question is a different one. It concerns not whether money is essential to happiness, because we know that it isn't, but whether it can buy happiness. Because after all, money can buy nice surroundings in safe places, holidays in the sun, pleasant experiences like spa treatments and delicious dinners. The key question is, is the possession of these sorts of things, all purchasable by money, the same thing as happiness? Now, our opponents want to persuade you that they are. But if they are the same, then money can indeed buy happiness, not just pleasure, and not just escape from cares and pressures, but actually happiness itself. Now, this argument, in effect, says that money can sometimes buy happiness because it can buy the conditions for happiness, and that is tantamount to buying happiness itself. Obviously, you can't have happiness unless the conditions for it are fulfilled. And that is exactly where their argument goes wrong, and it's very easy to see why. Suppose you have no friends. Can you go out and buy one? Are they on sale in the shopping malls here? Suppose no one loves you. Can you pay someone to love you? I mean, really and genuinely love you, not just pretend. (laughs) (laughs) These two thoughts by themselves should settle the matter. But there are still going to be people who make the following mistake. They know that money can buy pleasures, some pleasures, not all, and they confuse pleasure with happiness. That is, they confuse experiencing pleasure, having pleasurable experiences, with being happy, being in a state of happiness. It was another philosopher, G.E. Moore, who put his finger on the fallacy here of mistaking nice feelings and experiences with an attitude of mind in which genuine happiness consists. Happiness is an attitude, pleasure is an experience. And anybody can have experiences. In fact, unhappy people tend to go out and buy pleasures as often as they can, drink, drugs, sex, but they're still unhappy people. Now, the wisest note that the attitudinal state of happiness rests not on experiences only, but on facts about relationships and interesting, satisfying occupations which are the characteristic condition that happiness involves. Now, I know you were all reading Aristotle in the bath last night, and you will remember the bit where he says in the Nicomachean Ethics about eudaimonia, meaning that state of well-being and well-doing, of flourishing, of uh, satisfaction 
that the values and the goals that you have in life are the right ones. And those things, deciding on them and acting on them, have nothing to do with money. In fact, I think Thomas Jefferson made the wisest remark ever about happiness, and I quote him. It's neither wealth nor splendor which gives happiness, he said, but tranquility and occupation. And here he was following in the tradition that Aristotle started, a very ancient tradition. The Stoic philosophers of classical antiquity taught that real, solid, enduring happiness comes from two things from courage with respect to those things outside us that we can't do anything about, like tsunamis and typhoons and uh, diseases, death. One minute. And self-mastery, the second thing, self-mastery with regard to things we can control, the things within us, our appetites, our fears, our desires. So once again, he's talking about attitude, following the Stoics and saying that friends and fulfillment are the things that really count. And friends and fulfillment are not on sale anywhere in any shopping mall in the world. They can't be bought. They can be sought. They can be found. They can be made. They can be cherished. But they can't be bought with money. And that's why the motion of this debate states a simple but a very profound truth. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Grayling. Uh, finally, we have Lewis Iwu going against the motion, money can't buy happiness. Thank you, Lewis. I, uh, I like the idea of having a poll uh, before the debate starts. And it's interesting that apparently uh, 37% of you uh, support me uh, today. Uh, which I guess uh, means that poll numbers is something else that me and Barack Obama share. Um, I, think it's, uh, I think it takes a very brave organization to invite two Brits to talk about the management of money in recent times, but nevertheless, that's intelligence squared. Um, I, uh, I actually studied philosophy, politics, and economics and studied uh, Professor Grayling's work. Um, and it was really annoying because it was really clever, really sophisticated, uh, I had to stay up all night writing essays about why he, you know, his particular views were right or wrong or whatever. And I said to my tutor once, you know what? One of these days, I'm going to give Professor Grayling a kick up the backside. <laughs> and uh, I know this is being videoed, so I'd like to say to Professor Fraser, I told you so. Uh, though I actually have arguments, not just jokes. Um, seriously, it's an honour uh, being invited to come here uh, all the way to Hong Kong. Uh, when I heard about the invite... I was pleased, uh, get to go and sample some excellent food, meet new people, escape from the awful weather in Britain, and I was welcomed by a level eight typhoon, uh, and also news that there's a heat wave, heat wave in London, so perfect timing, I think, is, uh, is one of my skills. Ladies and gentlemen, there are some terrible things in the world today, terrible things. Famine, natural disasters, global warming, Justin Bieber... I think I've just lost the votes of the 14-year-old teenagers at the back. And by the looks of it, some of the uh, six-year-old men at the back too. Um, I, uh, but what I want to talk about today is something different. I want to talk about political stability and regional stability. And I'm going to make a controversial claim that when we are not dead, we are happy. That security is one of the essence of being happy. And then actually, if we look to places like Europe, places like the Middle East, Governments have continually used money 
as a way of leveraging security and in turn getting happiness. But before I do that, I want to look at some of the things we've heard from the last two speakers on the other side. So Stefan stands up and says, basically, there are some millionaires who aren't happy. And if you interview them a week after winning the lottery, they'll tell you that they're just as happy as they were when they didn't win the lottery. A couple of responses. Number one, those people tend to do things like give money to charity when they stop being happy because they're rich. Okay, So they do things like setting up philanthropic foundations, which actually makes them happy because they're helping people and they get that warm feeling inside and it's continual and actually makes other people happy. Second of all, this is slightly more important, not everyone in the world is a millionaire. In fact, there aren't that many millionaires in the world. So to say that money doesn't buy happiness because you're a millionaire only really affects 0.0.1% of the global population. In fact, I would hazard a guess that if you go to Somalia and you go to the 1 million people who are on the verge of starvation, who Oxfam reckon need about 700 million US dollars to stop that starvation, they'll probably walk through our side of the house today when they leave today's debate, given that the international community has only raised 140 million pounds for them. This debate is a utilitarian one. It's about, in most cases, for most people, can money buy happiness? And that's what I think. I also think it's a bit unfair interviewing people at specific points in their lives. I think the fairest way of adjudicating whether or not money can buy people happiness is by taking a, a long view, asking them on their deathbed, has money made you happier or more unhappy? Before the point in which you got money, was your life happier? And that's a fair reflection of their life because you've got to see an entire span. You're not picking a particular point. And also it's likely that they, because they're rich, they would have lived longer and had a higher quality of life and probably actually would die in a much more dignified way than if they couldn't afford palliative treatment, for example. So I think it's a bit unfair to ask people at specific snap point whether or not they're happy or not. But then we turn to the professor. And he said two things. First of all, relations are important. Of course they're important. But here's the thing. The quality of our human relationships are hugely affected by money. It's interesting that he said, you know, you can't find love, right? I tell you what, a lot of people, a lot of people don't have that much confidence. A lot of people are afraid to go out and be social beings, afraid to go out and date people. I mean, I'm single, uh, just to put it out there. Uh, it's part, it's part, part of my argument, just, just putting it out there. And, uh, and uh, in Hong Kong for a day. Uh, and... <laughs> And I know people like me all over the world are actually not that confident when it comes to, uh, come to, comes to these matters. So actually, I think being able to buy nice clothes, being able to get plastic surgery, Botox, if you need be, is actually sometimes can actually raise your self-esteem. It's a serious point here. Self-esteem is incredibly important to developing human relationships, both at a family level and a friend's level. Fine, probably is quite wrong if you try and buy friends, but you can buy the confidence which helps you go out and buy friends. So that's a clear response to what we've heard from Professor Grayling. I mean, how on earth do you think I look this good even though I'm 60 years old? I mean, <laughs> uh, just, just out of interest, how many people here are in a relationship? And how many, keep your hands up if you're happy. <laughs> oh, awkward, awkward. Uh, may, may have uh, made some relationships very unhappy tonight. Uh, nevertheless, nevertheless. So ultimately, money can buy you some goods, and I think that's important to realise. But I want to talk about something different. I want to talk about security. Without security, essentially, we're living in fear. In a climate of fear where we can't do things like have families, 
be sure that our child is going to get home from school safely. Be sure that our son or daughter or family member is going to get conscripted. Be sure that our house is going to be there tomorrow. And let's look at how states have been able to deal with this issue of security, particularly in Europe. Europe, one of the most conflict-ridden parts of the world. World War II, 50 million people died. On this very day in 1939, Germany and the Soviet Union signed a pact to split up occupied Poland. Yesterday, Germany agreed on a bailout package for Greece. A while ago, Europe was awash with red. But today it's not blood, it's tape. And whether or not you have political leanings about the EU or not, what it has done is it's brought peace and it's brought security. By raising prosperity across Europe, by increasing our financial ties, by pursuing money, by raising general standards in terms of living standards and wealth, what we've done is we've raised the opportunity cost of war. And that indirectly has made us more happy. We can now look at our family members and be glad that they're there. They're not fighting in a war somewhere on French land. We can... We can why did you laugh at French land? It's really, you're, having, you're, you're, you're pissing yourself over here. In front. Um, we can be... You've got me out of my little... I was on a roll about people not dying. But anyway... And it's He's really important. It's, it's, sorry? He's just happy to see you, and you've got one minute. Okay, cool. <laughs> and ultimately, we've been able to do that. Let's look to another region. Let's look to Israel, for example. The United States plowing $2 billion, US dollars a year, into Egypt as a price, basically, for peace, for signing the 1979 peace accords. That essentially stopped Egypt being a belligerent agent in the, re- in the region and stopping another war between Israel and Egypt. A clear transfer of money from one country to another, which has brought security to a certain extent better than it would have been otherwise to the region. When you vote today, you're voting on two main ideas. One is, in most cases, for most people, can money buy you happiness? This is not a debate about millionaires. It's a debate about you and me, maybe some of the millionaires in the corner. This is also a debate that looks at a holistic view. Over someone's lifetime, are they more or less likely to be happy? The answer is they're more likely to be happy. So money can be something that can buy happiness. And last of all, let's think about the international dimensions, how governments have been able to buy political stability and security across the world. And that is something that definitely makes us happy. That's why I think you should vote for our side. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Lewis. Now, um, before we cast our vote, um, actually, we're coming up to Q&A time, and um, have your votes ready. I, I, I don't know. I hope they've swayed your opinion somewhat, and so we, we shall be looking forward to some exciting results. So have your pieces of paper ready. But meanwhile, um, if I can take some questions from the floor. It's a very inspiring topic. Yeah, I see. Um, and we'll take them batches of three. Yes, a gentleman over there. Would you like uh, a mic? Will we pass you? Thank you. Hi. Uh, you said that you uh, can't buy yourself into friendships, but what would you say about the fact that you can buy yourself into a friend-rich environment? And is that not the same thing? So by taking yourself into an area or an activity where you're likely to make friends, is that not the same thing as 
good as making friends. Who would you like to address that question to? Professor Grayling. Professor Grayling. Can I actually, sorry, Professor Grayling, uh, if we can take the questions as uh, batches of three, it will save a little bit of time. Uh, the next question, please. Yes, we have another gentleman there. Thank you. Uh, my question is directed at Dr. Klein. And in your speech, you actually mentioned the fact that human beings are naturally uh, tuned towards negative emotions. And I actually think, um, well, I, personally, I kind of reject this uh, kind of notion. I think that um, a vast majority of us in this room would like to feel that we are more tuned towards positive emotions, and especially um, in conjunction with what Professor Grayling said, that we like to be reliant on relationships and things like this, which are normally positive things. So could you actually substantiate or respond to this fact about how um, you seem to assert that we're naturally ten- uh, we have a tendency towards negative emotions? Thank you. Thank you. And the last question of the first batch, please. We, we have a pretty big range age range with our speakers tonight. And I was, my question was is um, whether <clears throat> you feel the attitude towards this motion changes in accordance to one's maturity and life experiences. And who would you like to address that question to? Professor. Professor, Professor Grayling. <laughs> yes. Okay, so we have two questions for you, Professor Grayling. First one is, does money buy friend, a friend-rich environment? Yep, I'll take the second question first, if I may. Yes, of course, the older you get, the wiser you get. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to, to the first question, the, um, uh, no, I mean, I, 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 if the question is that getting into a friend-rich environment is the same thing as having friends, the answer is no, it isn't. I mean, once you've got into that environment, and I don't see why inevitably it involves money to get into such an environment, um, the, the getting of friends is something about you and them and your building of a relationship with them, and that's got nothing to do with money. I mean, I noticed that when, when Lewis, uh, who, who, by the way, uh, made me very happy this evening with his jokes, and they, they were free. I didn't pay for them at all. But when, when, he, when he said that he was single, I wanted to shout out, uh, how much are you offering? Because obviously it was... <laughs> uh, we have a question for you, Stefan. Yeah. Well, so um, uh, the question was he doubted that we are biased towards negative emotion. And um, I can substantiate it um, uh, by various findings. A, this um, simply follows from psychological research. If you give um, humans positive and negative stimuli, that is um, pleasant and unpleasant one of the same intensity, the negative ones always get remembered better and are felt stronger. Um, By the way, um, have you ever thought why um, most media, tabloids in particular, are not full of... um, uh, the world is green, is, the world is nice, but of typhoons, um, drafts, murder, etc., um, because our attention is much more directed towards them. And uh, this is because emotions are signals. Um, negative emotions are signals to warn us of something <laughs> threatening, and it always o- overrides um, a positive emotion. And if you just think back of an ordinary day where you felt um, seven hours in your working day, seven hours, 45 minutes, fine, and 15 minutes you had a dis- I take every bet with you what you're going to tell your partner in the evening. Thank you, Stefan. So, may we have the next batch of questions, please? 
Maybe. Yes, there are two. Uh, there's a lady and a gentleman in the middle. It's just over there. And a new gentleman at the end. Good evening. I have a question for Ms. Liu. Um, you mentioned earlier that it's irresponsible for us to, t uh, to say that money can't buy happiness. For example, you have governments in China who would use this as an excuse to sort of gloss over the fact that there's inequality happening in the mainland. But my observation as also a kind of personal opinion is that what happens in the mainland often the time is that the government actually uses the mantra that money can buy you happiness, and that's why they cater to only the material side of things. That's why they're happy to say that we won't satisfy your political desires, but we want to make sure that you have all the material needs that you need. And so counter to what you would propose, I would you know, want to see more in your views on this subject about how a lot of times actually governments do use this kind of single-minded pursuit of material achievement in order to gloss over the other more realistic or you know, more important and pertinent needs of, say, political um, realization of the people. People. Thank you. Thank you. That's a very good point. <laughs> Second question, please. Yes, we have a, somebody at the back. I have a question for Lewis. Do you not think that um, security? You want me to stand? Don't Don't you think that security is a rather poor substitute for happiness? The absence of misery, you're trying to peddle that as actually happiness. I would, I would contest that. Okay. Thank you. And one more question, please. Gentleman My question there. also for Lewis. Lewis. If the proposition was knowledge buys happiness, would you change your position? Okay. Right. Thank you. So... Um, Looping, would you like to answer the? Would you need to remind it, be reminded of the first question? Uh, the mainland, the, the, the government, they actually do propose that money does buy you happiness and just concentrate on your material needs and forget about politics and forget about health and all that. Yeah. What do you think? Right. I, I agree with you I mean, fully. I think the uh, Chinese government or any such a powerful government use it. Uh, in both hands, one hand they say that uh, money cannot buy happiness, so they don't have to really face their inequality problems. On the other hand, they will use also as a slogan, okay, uh, which is not true: is money uh, cannot buy happiness. Okay, they use that, so they uh, they also try to cover up something they should face. So I think you're right. And the important thing is that uh, in this world, we need the uh, government, any government, especially Chinese government, to really face the inequality problems uh, within their region because it's really serious. So if the equality problem has solved. They face the reality in the real world is they need, people need the minimum, uh, minimum uh, uh, everything to have a happy life. And that's the government's responsibility to solve that. So I think that's the main thing. That's the important thing, yeah. Thank you. 
Lewis. So does security is security a poor substitute for happiness? Um, I don't think it is because if you think about the things that make us happy, just list some, you know, uh, children or chocolate, episodes of Mad Men, whatever. These are things that we enjoy and we take for granted, but probably wouldn't exist if we were in a state of war or if we were living in, you know, uh, during World War Two, World War One. So a lot of those things are derivative upon the fact that we are secure and we might take that for granted. But I think the fact that we can be glad that we can go home and see our families and sit around a table and talk about things is predicated in us having them there. And I think actually the absence of war is a big factor in that. Uh, do you want me to the second question? To the second the question? Knowledge. About knowledge? Yeah, of course, knowledge can, can buy happiness. I, I think there are other things that can buy happiness. Um, I don't think that disproves that money can't buy happiness. I also think actually that knowledge also is bought by happy, uh, is bought by money. Uh, you know, whether it's you go, going to a private school, and in many countries that is the only viable option if you want to get a good education, or going to university, which is costly uh, in my country. Um, it is going to be more costly to go to university. Um, uh, I'm sure the new College of Humanities offers bursaries, but for most people, they have to pay. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, if you're a child, having things like a nanny or, you, you know, your parents having enough income so that they can stay at home and read to you. All these things are conditional on money. So they work together. Thank you, Lewis. Now, another batch of questions, please. Ah, more enthusiasm from the floor now. Yes, the gentleman in the suit. So I just want to come back to the Klein-Grayling axis. Uh, Dr. Klein, you were very... Uh, smart to try to disassociate satisfaction from happiness, and Professor Grayling did the same thing from pleasure from happiness. That sounds like the work of semantics and analytical philosophers who've got the time to set their argument out well. But for most people who either lack the intellectual horsepower or the money or the freedom to define what happiness is, being highly satisfied or having lots of pleasure would seem to be a good proxy for happiness, um, and if it's a good proxy for happiness, and you agreed you could buy satisfaction, you can buy pleasure, uh, then I would say you're being a little bit disingenuous, you know, to say happiness is on a higher ground than that, and really only philosophers can understand that. And your question being, you didn't have a question. <laughs> you just made a statement. I would like him to comment on that. Okay. Thank you very much for your comment. So that doesn't count as a question. <laughs> Um, so can we have... No, there, there was a question, though. Oh, there was a question, was there? Oh, okay. We have comments. Yeah, you have a comment. Oh, so that was a question. I'm well, you're in sorry. trouble. <laughs> okay. But we have to wait for the second and third. Yes, there was somebody, two people in the middle of the audience in there. Well, my question to the future Prime Minister of the United future Kingdom... Future Prime Minister. Yeah. Which one would you say is the future? <laughs> Mr. Lewis there. Oh, Lewis. Yes. Okay, um... Well, wouldn't you say that for one to have money, it would lead, for happiness, you need some sort of money. But when you have money, you, it doesn't always necessarily lead to happiness. We saw in that example of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, where Ebenezer Scrooge may have been the richest man in London, but he wasn't really the happy one. Oh, I missed that. Okay. Um, you got a note of that, Lewis? And then we have a gentleman over there, I think, for the last question of this batch. 
Hi. Oh, yeah. Sorry, question over here. Sorry, this is for. Uh, uh, oh, there. Sorry. The team that is. Um, who four says that money cannot buy happiness? Cannot. And I'm just looking at my iPhone four here, okay. which I bought. Oh, and makes okay. me quite happy. Um, until the new one comes out, I'll be even more happy when I buy that. But I'm just looking on my screen. I've got the 200, uh, sorry, 2009 Happy Planet Index here. And the top 10 countries, Costa Rica, Dominican Republic, Jamaica, Guatemala, Vietnam, none of those are the kind of economic powerhouses awash with cash. Um, if you scroll down, you find, um, let's see, who have we got? Switzerland is 52 and... Um, Japan 75. Sorry, what index was that? Was that the one conducted by North Korea? Where North Korea... <laughs> yeah, I failed to add oh, that wherever. North Korea is number one on this uh, index. But, so, my question is, why, is, why isn't, you know, the US, Japan, UK, those big economic powerhouses, why aren't they traditionally placed one, two, three, four up in the top ten? That's my oh, question. Okay. May I take that one? Um, yes, but you'll be after. Uh, yes, would you like to respond to that gentleman's uh, may, may question that statement? Yeah. Thank you. A very, a very nice question in the literal sense of that term. Thank you for it. It's about division of labour. Those of us who do have the, uh, the, the leisure and opportunity to do semantics are conscious of the fact that there are important distinctions. And the best way I can illustrate it is as follows. <laughs> if, I, if I were to, uh, to, to put a, a bag of flour and a jug of water and a, a bolus of fat and some sugar in front of you, and I said, this is a cake, you would say, no, it ain't, not yet anyway. And when I put them together in the right kind of way, I might be able to make a cake. Now, our, our uh, opponents here keep talking about those conditions, the satisfactions of which remove obstacles to happiness, but that's a far, far remove from happiness itself. And uh, I think the, the, the crux of the debate turns on this. Uh, on the one hand... We're not disagreeing with them that money is uh, necessary for some things and useful for others. That's, that's right. But by itself, and the key part of the motion is that money by itself can buy happiness. And that's the thing that we're objecting to by distinguishing happiness from some of those other things. Thank you. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd like to expand on a little bit because I found it, um, I found it a wonderful um, question. And you... Really go right in the wasp of the, how would you call it, in the nest of the wasp. I don't know if they have the same. Anyway, um, okay, you hit the point. Okay, thanks. Um, and the point is um, can happiness and/or satisfaction be measured at all? Or is it just some lofty concept one can merely talk about? And um, if you had asked, okay, I tell you from my experience, when I um, started off with my book, The Science of Happiness, um, 12 years ago, you see, I have many friends who are scientists and, and, and medical doctors. And um, science of happiness, and they would be um, more or less polite to let me say, well, can't he do something useful? Um, and now, and I mean, that's what you are saying. Um, and now um, most people wouldn't argue that way anymore because we have found ways to really measure happiness and to conceptualize it. 
you can, you can measure it by measuring what is going on in the brains of the people. Um, you can uh, measure it through um, social, uh, social research by, by asking them, for example, how satisfied um, are you with your lives? And this is precisely why such concepts are so important. You need to nail down what you are really talking about. And now um, going to the... Um, uh, to the issue with the happiness uh, with the happiness index ones. Now I don't know uh, that one with the dem- uh, with the demonic demonic. I wanted to say no, uh, uh, the Dominican um, uh, 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 Republic um, on top. The ones which I know and the ones which are generally respected in the scientific community, um, uh, uh, doing uh, doing research um, on that team, show something. Very interesting. They do not show the United States on top, and it's for example, and they do not show the richest countries on top. Uh, Something very telling. They show countries with a fair distribution of income on top, and they show countries on top where people um, have um, democratic rights and where they have um, rights to. to influence their surroundings. So you'd find typically the Scandinavian countries on top, Iceland on top, despite all their banks crushed and the weather is so, horrible. So wh- the question was, why is UK and USA not on top? Because um, uh, those are democratic societies, but with a quite high degree um, okay, of, okay. Um, of income disparities, and this matters. Okay, I think Lewis has a point. I think this proves our point. Because no, you've got a country like the UK where not. there are lots of people who don't have money and lots of people who have money. Presumably, the people who don't have money are dragging down the happiness index. And places like Scandinavia, where there's a pot of money which is no. distributed to as many people as possible. So presumably, the fact that Scandinavia tops that list because it gives more people money no. proves that maybe people are happy. But is, there's, there's just one more thing. Just one more thing I really need to respond to from uh, mm. Professor Grayling, right. which is this: uh, it's cheating that we're saying that you know uh, money can get you know can buy security, which gets happiness. Health leads to happiness, and most people agree with that because it removes obstacles to us leading a a, a, a good life because we are healthy, we are mobile, etc. In the same way that money removes obstacles. So I think in the same way you can make an analogy with health, you can make an analogy with money, and I think. The removing of obstacles is something that makes people happy. People don't like to live in a world where there are obstacles. It's like um, gym class. I don't. I didn't. I didn't like it because you know you had to negotiate like few things. Like I was unhappy during gym class. I think it's an appropriate analogy. But actually, Stefan, can I <laughs> very briefly, Louis, you are simply not right, and and I and I hope and I you're hope told to you're see, told to no. say that. And I hope to see it before you become prime minister. Because, because if you were right, if it was really money to buy happiness, um, happiness should have increased in the degree that societies got richer. We had that experiment in the last 50 years, and nothing happened. Nothing happened at all. And, and it's... And it's not the fact that Scandinavian countries are rich. Yes, they are. But so are the U.S. So is Kuwait. Um, you can see it when comparing Swiss cantons, the little counties of Switzerland. Um, there the comparison has been done. And happiness, satisfaction, with like, directly relates to the degree of um, 
democratic rights which they have within their society. But Stefan, how do you actually measure happiness in your book, The Science you're, of Happiness? Is it an actual guide on a sort of do-it-yourself? How do you actually no, measure? I mean, I'm, I'm tr- no, no, intrigued, for instance, yeah. China. You know, I'm, I'm quite familiar with China, and I've been to China in the 1970s. And I remember people before this, you know, Deng Xiaoping came along, China was a, seemed to be a blissfully happy country. People didn't have to care about their material needs. They seemed to be happy. Uh, okay, you know, cultural revolution, great leap forward and all that was just completely what? dreadful. But at least on the faces of people, they seem to be innocent. Do okay. you, would you call that sort of thing happy? Or no. are they happier now? Now that no. they've got Louis Vuitton and Gucci, are they happier? <laughs> or, How, does G-O-D. your book um, help me? And G- G.O.D. is not in there yet, so obviously uh-huh. they're not. Uh-huh. Completely satisfied, but uh, would your book, by reading your book, would okay. I be able to somehow measure? Gauge uh, yeah, this people's... is a brilliant idea. <laughs> no, um, uh, look, um, you can essentially measuring um, happiness by measuring. Um, you can measure it physical, physiologically because something happens in our brains. Now, you can do this with individuals. You, of course, <coughs> cannot do this with whole societies. You cannot put every sc- Chinese into a scanner. But what you can do, um, <laughs> you can... You can measure set, uh, you, you can measure satisfaction. You can measure content, uh, contentment with life by simply asking um, people. That's why I said right. it's both uh, highly related, but it's not exactly the same. Right. But you can measure satisfaction. Right, with full body scanners. Mm. Uh, no, uh, with mouses and ears. Okay. Thank you. So let's take uh, some more questions. Well, just over halfway through the question time. Actually, we're 20 minutes through. So we've got 10 minutes left. So please, valuable time. Yes, we're gentlemen there and the lady over there. Thank you. Hi. Um, Hello. A couple of quick points, maybe, or one quick point of question. Firstly, we spent a lot of time there talking about whether or not Switzerland was richer or Sweden was richer. I didn't notice that we discussed any of the poor countries, Somalia, etc., being top of that list. Perhaps something to do with uh, at least some wealth is required to have some level of happiness. Mm-hmm. But the other point that I wanted to ask uh, the uh, Dr. Klein, using your example, um, you said that a poor man who gets given a large amount of money, will be happy for a short period of time and then becomes satisfied. What I would ask is that if you take that rich man after that million pounds, whatever it was he won, and take that away, does he get proportionately more unhappy for a period of time before he gets satisfied again? In other words, <laughs> in other words all that you have had with that uh, differentiation in levels of happiness is the money that was provided. Okay, thank you. And then we have the second question, please, from somebody a little bit further back. I think it was over there. Thank you. Uh, that was a great last question, and I'd like to follow on. Um, oh, another question for Dr. Klein. Um, the example of the man that you mentioned right at the beginning, the man with many palaces who was very rich, my question is, was he born rich or... Did he acquire those riches over the course of his life? Because I think the big thing to consider here is what is the difference, and there is one, between those who are born rich and most uh, people who have to work really hard to get to that level. I mean, even if you just look around the room, most of us here in the room had to pay to get in tonight. Um, And I think we're all pretty happy. At least that's the way it looks, so lots of laughs. Thank you. And who was that question addressed to, please? Dr. Klein, mm-hmm. you're very popular, Stefan. <laughs> okay, wow, sport for choice. I can't, uh, it's over there. Okay. I have actually got the microphone, so. 
My, microf- Sorry, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see you. My, oh. The answer is microphones can buy you happiness. Uh, Go those on. Were, those were two very good questions, so I'm going to ask a rubbish one. Um, I've actually already voted so, um, but I'd, uh, for the motion, but I'd like to just press um, uh, Mr. Professor Grayling um, on one point. He seemed to imply that reading Aristotle lying in one's bath was kind of the definition of happiness. Um, my point actually is, does he know what Hong Kong rents are? Um, I actually can't afford a bath in Hong Kong. Would I not be happier if I could afford a bath in which to read my Aristotle? Thank you. <laughs> right. So, two questions to Stefan. Let's do the thing with the bath first and the rents. Oh, okay. Professor Grayling, yeah, you know Hong Kong you're, rents? You're, you're dead right there. You, you, were, you were wondering about what, what the expression is uh, about getting exactly the point. Yeah. In the immortal words of a pupil of mine at Oxford once, you've put your foot on something important there, which is that, uh, that re- reading Aristotle in the bath is indeed the paradigm of happiness, and uh, you can come and have a bath at my place any time you like. <laughs> <laughs> Just, just, just before, before Stefan swings into action on, on the indices and so on, I, I think you can't really rely um, on uh, poll results from Scandinavia. It's too dark for them to see which box to tick there. <laughs> but uh, on a serious point, the reason why Somalia doesn't figure high is because of conflict. That's a quite different matter. I mean, in places of the world where people are really suffering, this is, this is a serious point, folks, where, where, where people are suffering conflict and war and attrition and, and oppression... Uh, of course, that they're not going to be um, saying they're any kind of happy. And uh, in rich countries where there are difficulties of that kind, I mean, people weren't happy uh, after September the 11th in the United States of America. And that's nothing to do with wealth. It's to do with, um, you know, uh, tensions of a very different sort. And that's the reason. So what one has to do is look for the right comparators, look for countries where there are other things are equal, peace and stability and the rest, and then look at the difference between the wealth levels. And you find... Uh, to your you know, surprise, perhaps, that the countries that are less well-off tend to have other ha- higher happiness quotients. I'm so glad that, uh, uh, that you made that point. Um, uh, so you like empire after all. I, I doubted this when you, uh, when you said that um, about the Scandinavian. I thought, look, he's really from the humanities. <laughs> no. Um, uh, the, um, uh, there is, and this is um, answering to your question, um, there is a very strong correlation of um, gross national of gross national income um, to happiness to satisfaction with life when you ask people um, when in underdeveloped countries so the curve really goes like this every dollar more counts and every dollar more buys yes happiness um, and I think this is this marks the case why we need much more international redistribution, much further t- terms of trades, etc. You all know that discussion. Um, then you have the countries going... Oh, um, and when you are living in countries um, which are torn by war, by violence, of course, people, of course, are extremely insatisfied. Then you have countries going through a, uh, through a transition, and there you still have the correlation between income and satisfaction, but it's, it's much less steep. And then you have a third class of countries, uh, those would, which you would call affluent, uh, rich countries, and there is no correlation between national income 
and um, satisfaction with life any more, any more at all. There are other factors count. Um, so when you are living in an affluent society, money doesn't buy happiness. And the other question um, was, I think, about the millionaire. What was it who lost a million dollar or so? Does it matter to be born rich or to, oh, be, all right. to work um, to make your money? Uh, yeah, um, I, I, I'm... I'm afraid to say um, that it's better to be born rich um, because, um, because, running, because running, okay, no, um, same thing's equal, same thing's equal. Two men who have a million dollar and the one was born with a million dollar and the one who had to work for it, then it's better to have been born rich because running after money abates your happiness. But this is not to say that you're, are any happier with a million dollar than with um, saying uh, $50,000 or even $10,000 on your bank account. So um, it's a bad idea to run after the money to get a million dollar when you are not born with it. So it's a good idea to born, be born rich. Yes. Okay. But to not run after uh, the money. Yeah, one of the organizers is doing this to me, so I, I got that what that meant. Um, basically, I'm going to read out the summaries, um, my little notes on the summaries, and then we'll give a very surprising result. Um, what Lewis basically said, I, I, aside from your little Britain-esque jokes, was... I'm sorry? No, I, I, I do the summaries, no? Yes. Oh, you want to do all? Okay. What was that? Yeah, sure. I thought I was doing that. <laughs> Denied me the pleasure. Whatever, Go makes, on, Lewis. whatever makes you happy. Um, okay, I guess we could summarize. Okay, my summary is going to be brief. Uh, I'm going to ask a series of questions. Um, first of all, can money make you more social? Because this was what Professor Grayling was concerned about. Of course it can. It can make you more confident, raise your self esteem. Can money strengthen your personal ties to people? Again, something that Professor Grayling said was a key component of happiness. I'm going to use this. Of course it can. It can ensure that the palliative care you have for your loved one is improved. It can ensure that your disabled child has the facilities at home so they can have a meaningful life. It can mean that you can buy extra years to spend with your loved ones. Can it buy you security? Professor Grayling said that the reason why Somalia isn't happy is because they don't have security. That's our point. It's true. You can buy security, you can buy happiness. The Marshall Plan in Europe, the EU, Egypt, and uh, its ties to Israel. Finally, final question. Has this been a good opportunity to find a date? Maybe, who knows? <laughs> But I want to read you some choice quotes from this debate. It is better to be born rich. For most people, there's a positive correlation between money and happiness. Scandinavia is a good example of a place where people are happy because they redistribute money i.e. they give more money to more people. Those were quotes not from our side, but from their side. They don't even believe their own side. And that's why, like them, you should support us. Thank you. Thank you, Lewis. <laughs> Professor Grayling, next. Would you like to summarize, please? Well, as I said in response to Miss Liu, I, I'm completely on the side of the motion for which our opponents have uh, argued. And they've argued very eloquently that money is useful, that uh, it, it helps in, in a lot of ways, that um, we're better off having some, some money for a variety of purposes. So that, that motion's okay, but that wasn't the motion we were discussing. The motion is, can you buy happiness? Can money buy happiness? Now, what Stefan and I were trying to do is to show that there is a very important distinction between uh, what money can buy you and what happiness is. 
And happiness is something, we talked about the central importance to happiness of good relationships and of a fulfilling uh, occupation in, in life and engagement with life. And those are things that people can have and can do independently of how much money they have. And so the key, the key issue really is, are all those ingredients, the flour and the water and the sugar, um, are they already cake or are they, uh, is the cake something that your own quite independent talent and genius for uh, um, uh, culinary affairs will produce? And I, I can even prove to you right now that for no money at all, I can make two of us up here very happy. <laughs> Me, keeping a promise, and Doug, for what I'm just about to say. Shop at G-O-D. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much. You'd be spared a kick up the backside by uh, Lewis. <laughs> now, who's next? Uh, Miss Lu? Lu Ping? Would you like to summarize, please? Mm, okay. You have three minutes. Yes, talking about chocolate, yeah. Mm. If um, you didn't give our side enough vote, what can I do? I'll go to buy a scoop of ice cream and something here, endorphin or something, what do you call, will give me really the instant high. And that's uh, that's uh, uh, through the our debate, people in other side try to differentiate happiness other than fun and pleasure, all those terms, very philosophical. But I think um, even along this side, it's uh, if you want to differentiate the concept-wise, there's uh, uh, some good experiment try to really define what is happiness. And so there's in fact, two parts is experience, experiencing self and also the remembering self. The experiencing self is something I just mentioned. Okay, scoop of ice cream, good experience. The instant, the moment-to-moment happiness. The remembering self is when people ask you, are you happy? Have you been happy? Are you a good uh, have you have a good happy life? Okay, that's you have the whole concept of what your life is. So it's like a life in retro, retrospective, what you see yourself, and both of these elements. I mean, this is very scientific. According to uh, some good experiment, they ask people question like what do you feel now or what do you feel about your life and also measure their income and so the conclusion is for those two elements both needs money okay for the first one the money the buying experience or not just the possession the material you acquired but just go there thinking you're improving yourself or you can buy some good gift for someone you love, that experience heightened your happiness. For the remembering self, okay, the one previously was for the experiencing self. For the remembering self, a lot of experiment also indicate generally if you have um, high income, you feel you are wealthy, then you feel your life is fully, more fully achieved. 
it's also in accordance with this uh, Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs. So you feel generally you are more a self-realized person. Okay, so I, think I might have to wrap you up. Yeah, thank so you. that's, thank you, that's it. Yeah. And finally, Dr. Stephen Klein, before, um, if you can summarize before I read up the uh, results, please. Three minutes. Well, for me, that debate made something very clear, um, namely uh, the question, can money buy me and you individually happiness? And, see, and the answer is very obviously no, and I haven't heard a single argument um, uh, from uh, the other side um, that goes into that direction. Uh, whether it matters how money is distributed in a societies or among societies is another matter. And um, I think on that matter, we all here agree that, of course, it is important how you distribute goods. Um, this is a... Ma- <laughs> <laughs> um, fairness matters. Possibilities for um, empathy matters. Class distinction matter. Um, and those are mirrored in the distribution uh, uh, with money. And uh, this is uh, the point the other side has been making. But that is not to say that money can buy happiness um, at the moment where you, are, where you have what you need. And one thing is important there. I think um, it is important to be very clear about that because in any society, if you want a fairer society, if you want a redistribution of income, you need social acceptance for it. And you're not going to have this acceptance if everybody thinks that his or her bank account will make him or her happy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Stefan. Now, for the results. Just a reminder of the original vote. Four was 45%. Against was 37%. Undecided was 18%. The final vote, four is 49%, an increase of 4%. Against, 49%, an increase of uh, 12%. Well done. And uh, undecided is 2%. Um, Somehow, not a very satisfactory, it's a tied result. So... I don't know how, if, we, if it's possible to do a, like a, you know, because of the, those, the 2% that, that's not been decided. I wonder if we can just have a quick show of hands. for. tie makes everybody happy. Yeah? Okay. Tie makes everybody happy. Yes, yeah. I can see that. Um, so, since I was denied the privilege of summing up, let me just have the final word on this. <laughs> I enjoy this. I almost got to be a speaker, actually, because Looping was redirected by the typhoon to uh, Manila. And we almost lost, lost her this morning. Um, so uh, I think, well, as, a, as I was telling you, as a retailer, I'm bound to tell you that money does buy happiness. But then again, I know for a fact that tickets to this event has been sold out way in advance to the extent that the organizers have had to take out really expensive ads in the IHG, FT, and SEMP and all that to tell people to stop calling us. They've just got half-page ads that says, sold out, don't call us, don't pester us, you can't get tickets. In other words, money can't buy you tickets to this event. (laughs) 
There are a lot of people unhappy out there tonight. So I hope that makes you guys very happy. And next time, when there's an event coming up, don't be late to buy those tickets. See you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.